This afternoon we'll be considering Baptist Catechism number 101. It asks, what is the duty of such who are rightly baptized? So we have been learning about the ordinary and external means of grace. They are the Word of God read and preached. They are the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, also prayer. And we are now considering those ordinary and external means of grace one at a time. Uh, We have been learning about baptism, what it signifies, who it's to be applied to, who it's not to be applied to. And now we are asking, what is the duty of such who are rightly baptized? In other words, what are these who are baptized to go on doing? Answer, it is the duty of those who are rightly baptized to give up themselves to some particular and orderly church of Jesus Christ that they may walk in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. The reading for today comes from Romans 16, verses 1 through 15. Here we find a list of names, and I tremble a little bit to read this, because some of them are difficult to pronounce. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sintrae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epaphanitus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus, Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphanus, excuse me, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologists, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Lord, forgive me for butchering some of these names who are here. (laughs) It doesn't matter how much I practice them either. It almost makes it worse sometimes. Uh, But why have I tortured myself with the task of reading all these unfamiliar and hard-to-pronounce names that are found at the end of Paul's letter to the church in Rome? The reason I've done this is to remind you that those who have faith in Christ are to be baptized, and they are to join themselves to churches. These names are names of real people who believed in Christ. These were baptized upon their profession of faith, and they were members of the church in Rome. Just think of that for a moment. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he names these people by name. I think it is an awesome thing to consider these hard-to-pronounce names represent people, real people who lived real lives long ago. They lived in a very different time and place from the time and place in which we live today, but we share this in common. They had faith in Jesus Christ. 
and so do we. They were baptized into Christ, and so have we been baptized. And they were members of the Church of Rome, just as we are members of this local congregation here in this distant land. They, were, they, they heard the word read and preached there. They celebrated the Lord's Supper there. Isn't that fabulous to consider? Uh, they did the same sorts of things that we do here in this congregation. And we live so long after them and so far away from where they lived. So the question that we are considering from our catechism today reminds us of this, that those who have faith in Christ, they are to be baptized, and those who are baptized, they are to join themselves to a local church where they will be taught to obey all that Christ has commanded us. I want to consider question 101 of Baptist Catechism piece by piece. First, the question, what is the duty of such who are rightly baptized? This means... What are those who are baptized then to do? How are they to live after their baptism? Are they, are they to be baptized and then just to go back to their old way of life, to go back to their, to their private lives? It's really an important question. I think you would agree. Baptism is to be applied near the beginning of the Christian life. It marks one's entrance into the kingdom of God and shows that we are partakers of the covenant of grace. It should be applied not long after someone makes a credible profession of faith. Yes, there is some preparation that needs to take place. But it should be applied not long after someone makes a credible profession. So baptism is applied at the very beginning of the Christian life. The question is, now what? Now what is this person to do? And our catechism is right to say that it is the duty of those who are rightly baptized to give themselves up to some particular and orderly church of Jesus Christ. We might ask, what does the word particular mean here in this context? Here, particular refers to a local or visible church. We might ask, is there such thing as a universal or Catholic church? By the way, when you hear that word Catholic church, it is not unique or it does not belong to the Roman Catholics. Catholic means universal. And there is a universal or Catholic Church. When we speak of the universal church, we are talking about all who have true faith in Christ throughout the world. The universal church is sometimes called the invisible church because we cannot see it with our eyes. God sees it, but we cannot see it. The universal church cannot assemble on earth. Have you ever thought about that? It's impossible. We're separate, separated by great distances. We even live in different time zones but the universal church does assemble. Where does the universal church assemble now? We would say the universal church assembles in heaven now, spiritually speaking. And it will assemble for all eternity in the new heavens and earth after Christ returns. But it cannot assemble on earth today, for the universal church is too large. It is separated by geographical distance, not to mention being separated by things like language and even culture. When a person places their faith in Christ, they are automatically joined to this universal and invisible church by virtue of their spirit-wrought union with Christ. All who have faith in Christ are joined together in Him. So there is a universal or Catholic church. It is all who have faith in Christ spread throughout the whole world. And we might even add to this the idea of chronology. It is those who have believed in Christ even in the past. They are a part of the universal church. So it is past and, is, and it is present, and indeed some will, in, will believe also in the future. 
This is the universal church of Christ. But that is not, but that is not the church that our catechism is here talking about. Our catechism is teaching that the one who has faith in Christ ought to join themselves, must join themselves, to a particular church. That is to say, a local church, a visible church made up of officers and members, where the Word of God is preached and the sacraments are administered as the church assembles together each Lord's Day. The church is called to assemble, to congregate together And that is the kind of church that our catechism is here talking about when it refers to a particular church. You know, as you read the New Testament, you'll find that references to particular local churches are found everywhere. You just need to look for them. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were to be circulated amongst the churches. And they even contain instructions for life in the church, even though... Uh, they are telling us about Christ's life, much of His life before His death, burial, and resurrection. There's still instructions found in, in the Gospels for life in the church. The book of Acts is all about the local church. We hear of churches being planted in the book of Acts. We hear about elders and deacons being appointed. We hear about the members of these local churches scattered throughout uh, the, the known world in that day as Paul uh, conducted his missionary journeys. And speaking of Paul, most of his letters were written either to local churches, the church in Rome, the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae, or to men who were serving as ministers within these churches. I'm here thinking of the letters written to to Titus and to Timothy. Even the book of Revelation was addressed to seven particular churches in Asia Minor. The point that I am here making is that the topic of the local church is so pervasive in the New Testament that it's really hard to imagine the Christian faith being practiced apart from it. And yet so many try in our day and age. You know this, don't you? It's foreign to you. You don't think this. You're here on the Lord's Day. Most of you are, are members of this local church. But you know that many today claim to love Jesus, but they don't want anything to do with the church. These seem to have forgotten that Jesus did not merely die for them individually. No, the Scriptures tell us that Christ laid down His life for the church. It is the church, and not you and me as individuals only, that Christ calls His bride. In Ephesians 5.25, He calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Christ laid His life down not for us merely as individuals, but for us collectively. He laid His life down for His bride, the church. So, we must acknowledge that this is what the Scriptures call us to do. After believing upon Christ, we are to be baptized. And baptism is is a sacrament of the church. It's, It's something to be administered by the church. And having been baptized, we are to join ourselves to a particular congregation. I would say preferably the one we were baptized in, but people do move on, don't they? Uh, from the churches they were originally baptized in, especially in our modern day as people are so uh, transient. Notice also the word orderly in our catechism. We're to join a particular church, a local church. We're to join also an orderly church. It is the duty of those who are rightly baptized to give themselves up to some particular and orderly church of Jesus Christ. Now, an orderly church is ordered or organized according to the Scriptures. We should confess and admit 
that no church is perfect, including this one. No church is perfect. But a church that is well-ordered will have officers and members. The scriptures will be faithfully taught there. And the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper will be faithfully administered. And, And lastly, an orderly church will be a disciplined church. And by this I mean that the church, its elders and members together, will be faithful to do what is commanded in Matthew 18 and what is described in 1 Corinthians 5. Those who are struggling with sin will be lovingly and patiently called to repentance. And those who persist in sin in an unrepentant and stubborn way will in an orderly manner be removed from the church. I think this is what is meant by orderly. The church needs to be ordered not according to our opinions or our preferences or or our traditions. The church must be ordered according to the Word of God. Orderly means properly ordered. And properly ordered implies that there is a standard to which we are to conform. I'm afraid that many churches today have forgotten this. It is strange when it comes to the doctrine of the church or ecclesiology, how often it is taught, even in our colleges and seminaries, that when it comes to the government of the church, it's kind of all up to matters of preference and wisdom. You know, there's the church, but how it is to be organized, that's up to you. It's, it's very common for that to be taught today. But in fact, we see that the Scriptures do give us a doctrine of the church. The Scriptures do clearly command the church concerning what it is to do and how it is to be ordered. So, in a day and age where so many take it upon themselves to decide how they should do church, we must stand and say, this is not our place. It is not for us to decide. We are to do church as God has commanded us to do church. The church must be properly ordered according to the Scriptures. Now, some decisions are naturally left to us. And and what sorts of decisions are left to us? Well, you actually just saw an example of that this past summer, didn't you? One of our AC units went out, and the elders of the church said, We will assemble for worship on the Lord's Day, which is commanded in Scripture. That decision is not left up to us. And we will do it at 9 a.m. because it's hot, and the AC isn't working. And we could have said 8 (laughs) a.m. That's what we need to do. So there are matters of things that are left to to wisdom. Um, But there are things that are just so clearly revealed in God's Word that we cannot disregard them or go in a different way. Some decisions are naturally left to us, but our main concern should be to conform ourselves to the order prescribed by Christ, which is found in the Scriptures. And if I can offer a word of wisdom to my brothers and sisters in Christ who are outside this local congregation, as if anyone else is listening to this, who, who may happen to be listening, and I, I, would, I would say to other Christians, stop looking for a hip church. Does anyone even use the word hip anymore? I look at my kids. So by the... By, by, the using, by using the word hip, I just revealed that I and we are not hip. <laughs> Stop looking for, for a hip church. Start looking for a faithful church. Look for a faithful church. One that is well ordered according to the scriptures. It might not be flashy on the surface. It might not be exciting in, in, its, in its worship. Um, but... What matters is that a church is well-ordered according to the Scriptures. The words give up themselves in our catechism are also important. Church is not a service to attend. 
but rather it is a body to join. Christians are to give up themselves to a particular and well-ordered church of Jesus Christ. When someone joins a church, they make a commitment to that congregation, and the congregation makes a commitment to them. And what is that commitment? Well, in brief, we commit to be the church together, to assemble for worship, to to receive the word together, to partake of the ordinances, and to do and even be subject to what is called church discipline. When someone joins a church, they make a commitment to love the members of that congregation, and they receive a commitment to be loved. The Scriptures teach that new members are to be received. See Romans 14.1. And that does imply some formality. Please remember this. Christians are not merely to attend church as if attending a conference, or worse yet, a concert or a comedy club. Christians are to give themselves up to a local church. They are to entrust themselves to the elders, deacons, and members of that church. And they themselves are to endeavor to use whatever gifts God has given to them for the building up of the body of Christ in that place. For we are all members of one another. Romans 12.5 Lastly, our catechism says, "...that they may walk in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless." Here we are reminded that the Christian life is a walk, it is a journey... Where we end up matters more than where we begin. And Christians are to walk with one another. They are to walk by faith in the church. And in this walk, we are to be concerned with keeping the commandments of God. Remember what Jesus said when He commissioned His disciples. He came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. One of the primary responsibilities of the church, with elders at the lead, is to teach Christians to observe all that Christ has commanded them. And this is a process. This is a process for believers. Sometimes it's a grueling process. Have you noticed this? Sanctification sometimes is very hard. Really, we do sometimes struggle greatly with sin. And therefore, it is necessary for members of the church to be very patient and kind towards one another. God's commands are to be obeyed, and Christ's ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are to be kept. Here we are to think primarily of baptism and the Lord's Supper when we talk about ordinances. They are to be kept. They are to be kept pure. They are to be administered properly. You know, the Reformers had to wrestle with the question, what constitutes a true church after their break from Rome? We actually learned about this a little bit in in our biography reading last night as we considered that famous uh, Scottish Reformer, John Knox. It's one of the questions the Reformers had to wrestle with. What constitutes a true church after breaking from Rome? For those in Rome, that question was easy to answer. Rome is the true church. Anything outside of its structure, with the Pope at the head, is to be rejected. The Reformers were right to reject this organizational approach and to put stress elsewhere. True churches are those churches that preach and teach the Word of God accurately, administer the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and Baptism faithfully, and some would also add, true churches are disciplined. True churches, remember, may be strong or weak. They could be pure or somewhat impure, relatively speaking. 
But these three marks that I have just mentioned characterize true churches. The Word of God is faithfully preached there. The sacraments are faithfully administered. And the church is disciplined according to the Word of God. I think the Reformers were right to identify these three marks of a true church. Remember, this catechism that we are working our way through was compiled by particular, or we might say Reformed Baptists. And I think it is interesting that they did not say It is the duty of those who are rightly baptized to give themselves up to some particularly and orderly particular Baptist church, that they may walk in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. Are you following me here? They did not insist that Christians join themselves to them. All true Christians will become as we are, particular or Reformed Baptists. They spoke in a more broad and charitable way, and I think this is right. They were charitable. They knew that there were many churches outside of their tradition, outside of their tribe, we might say, that were true churches of Jesus Christ. In their opinion, they might have been less pure or weaker in their doctrine than they were. We should have firm conviction, shouldn't we? But they were not willing to say that the only true churches on planet earth were those that were subscribed to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith or something like that. And I don't think we should have that attitude either, brothers and sisters. We must be charitable. We must recognize that there are other true churches outside of our particular tradition. Though we might disagree with them on important matters, they are still true churches of Jesus Christ. And all who turn to Christ and place their faith in Him are to be baptized. And having been baptized, they are to join themselves to some particular and some orderly church of Jesus Christ so that they might learn to walk in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. We need to regain a robust doctrine of the church in our day and age. I think we've begun to. We appreciate this here. But the church at large in our nation needs to regain a robust doctrine of the church if we are to walk in a way that is pleasing to our Lord. Let's bow for a brief word of prayer and then we will go to corporate prayer. Our Father in Heaven, do help us as a congregation. We do thank You for the reform that we have experienced over the years. And in particular, I do thank you for the reform that we have enjoyed in the area of our ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. Lord, I pray that you would purify us further. I pray that you would not allow us to be content with where we are or blind to our weaknesses, O Lord, but that we would consistently go to the Holy Scriptures and ask, are we living in a way that is pleasing to our God? I pray that we would do this individually, but also corporately. Lord, I do pray for the elders of this church in particular, that you would strengthen them to lead well and according to the Scriptures. I pray for our deacons too, that they would serve well, to the glory of your name and for the good of your people. And I pray for each member, that you would stir them up to use the gifts that you have given to them for the edification of the body of Christ. We thank you for the church, O God. We thank you that Christ shed his blood for her, the bride, I pray that you would preserve her and grow her and strengthen her until Christ returns. In His name we pray. Amen.